Thank you for tuning into the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series in Exodus. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. When Julius Caesar returned to Rome after many years of battles against Egypt and the Gauls and Africa, uh, he came back to Rome with a desire to display his pompous glory before the city of Rome. In the process of doing so, what what he did was he paraded through the streets of Rome in a way that was uh, suitable for a conquering general and for a conquering hero only. Each procession, each parade that he had took approximately one day from beginning to end. He started the parade at the gates of Rome and they marched all the way to the temple to the god of Jupiter. Celebratory parades wound through the streets displaying treasures, Uh, large paintings, maps of territories that were conquered by the empire of Rome and by their military victories. And after that came the prisoners of war with their barbarian king behind them. After the prisoners of war, uh, the Roman officials, and then finally the commander riding in in all of his glory on a chariot, most of the time led by about three or four white horses. Uh, Julius Caesar wore a laurel wreath and a purple toga uh, around his body. He carried the eagle scepter as the the sign and the uh, symbol of victorious Rome. He colored his face with red to represent the god of Jupiter. And while over him, this entire time riding in the chariot was a slave, and the slave's one responsibility was to take a golden wreath and hold it over his head to show that he himself was the conqueror, not only of Rome, but of all these other territories. And it is said, history recalls the time after these parades, each and every time, this slave would lean down and into the ear of Julius Caesar, whisper something that only he would hear. And it goes something like this. The slave would say, remember, you are still only human. Uh, I used to have a, a friend in seminary that every time he opened a prayer, he said the, almost the same thing in the exact same way. He would start his prayer and he said, Father, we thank you that you are God and we are not. And it was a reminder, a precious reminder and a, a timely reminder that God is God and we are not, but God has a glory, a splendor, a majesty that is different than all of his creatures and all of his creation, that his glory exceeds man's glory at every step in every way. Uh, This morning, what I want to do is take a look at Exodus 33, and I've entitled this sermon, Show Me Your Glory, because that's exactly what Moses prays for. We're going to see three things as we go throughout this chapter on the glory of God. The first thing I want to do for you is to define it. What is God's glory. What does glory actually mean? Number two, we'll look at the problem of God's glory. And then finally, we'll look at the solution. A definition, a problem, and a solution as we look at God's glory in Exodus 33. Number one, as we start this morning, first is definition. Uh, Probably the majority of you in this room uh, grew up in church. And so as you grew up in church, certainly at some point in time, you've heard this verse on the screen, Romans 3.23. And it goes something like this. Most of the time we see it in an evangelistic appeal. 
Uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is why we need God, because ultimately we are all sinners. And Romans 3.23 is, is a simple enough verse, but there are some difficulties to it. The first part of the verse I have no problems with. The first part of the verse I think even Phil can understand it. Uh, all of us are sinners. All of us have done wrong. Despite what a postmodern culture and, and people would say, there is a difference between right and wrong. I think God has burned that in our conscience, being created in his image. And so we know something of, of guilt. We know something of shame because as human beings and as sinners, we understand that we have sinned. We have done wrong before God, before other people. And, and so we understand the first part of this verse actually very clearly and, and easily. It's the last part of the verse that's a, a little bit more confusing. It's the last part that gives us a little bit more difficulty. Uh, Brandy and I recently went on a vacation, and we've got this little spot that we like to go to uh, um, if we can, and the season is right, and the times are right, and the budget is uh, in, our, in our favor. Uh, but we love to go to the Phoenix area and spend time in the desert. And we went, on, we went to this uh, place that we, we like, and we've enjoyed been there about three times now. And, and this last time we went, there was a time when we were sitting out at the pool and just kind of looking around. I think uh, Alan and Linda was probably texting you guys something during this time. But um, I looked out at the scenery. I looked out at the mountains around us. If you don't know, Phoenix is just this big valley. They call it the valley. And all around is, the, is mountains. It's surrounded by desert mountains. And so we look out at the pool we're sitting in, and you see there's these mountains in the distance. And it's just a clear, not a sky, not a cloud in the sky. Just a beautiful, beautiful day. And kind of said to ourselves as we're sitting there, man, this place is glorious. This place is majestic. It is so beautiful. Um, Oftentimes when you use the word glory, we use it as a synonym to describe something with beauty that's beautiful, breathtaking, something that transcends uh, what we would typically see or typically experience on a normal day. Other times we use this word glory to celebrate people who are incredibly successful. Uh, we might say something like, that person's career was glorious, that touchdown pass, that spiral that was thrown to that receiver and the way he caught it, that was a glorious play. That jump shot, the form that that guy had on his jump shot, that was a glory. That golf shot that just went right in the hole after two bounces and spun backwards because it was so solid, that was a glorious shot. Glory is often used as an adjective to describe something that's impressive. And so... So biblically speaking now, glory is a term that's a little bit different than both those things. We understand glory used as a, a synonym for beauty. We understand glory is used as a synonym for impressive or, or just unbelievable in some kind of way. But, but the biblical understanding of glory goes deeper and much further than that. The Hebrew word for glory in the Old Testament is kavod. And it's related to the Hebrew verb. Almost all the nouns are related to a verbal form related to the verb kaved. And kaved actually is a word that, word that means to be heavy or to be weighty. In 1 Samuel 4, verse 18, it describes Eli as a priest who was old and glorious, old and weighty. It means that he was a heavy priest, 
right before he died. Uh, Isaiah 32, verse 2. I've got this verse on the screen for you. Each, speaking of princes here in Isaiah 32, will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like storms, streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great, and that's the word kavod, a great rock in a weary land. Um, glory is this, it's this word, again, it just means to be heavy, almost like a mountain that we were looking at. Uh, it just has the presence, the weightiness of something that's significantly heavy. Glory is often used not only physically to describe weight or heaviness, but also metaphorically to describe something that is weighty. Genesis 48 verse 10 describes eyes that are kavod, heavy. And actually this refers to blindness. A heavy eye would refer to an eye that is dim or that cannot see well. In Exodus 9, 7, uh, verses that we read not too long ago, uh, speaking of the plague upon, upon Egypt, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. That's the word kavod. Same word. The heart was heavy, translated most of the time as hardened in the Old Testament. Both physically and metaphorically, kavod can mean something of heaviness, of weightiness. But I want you to look at this verse in Genesis 45, verse 13. Uh, this is Joseph speaking. He has revealed his identity to his brothers, who before wanted to kill him when they threw him in the, uh, in the den for the Midianite traitors. Joseph is speaking here. He says, you must tell my father of all my honor, all my kavod in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Remember, Joseph was second in command uh, he was Pharaoh's right-handed man to get through the years of famine that went through Egypt. Here, kavod has a sense of importance, maybe significance. Haggai chapter 2, verse 3, a question is asked, Who is left among you who saw this house, speaking of the destroyed temple, in its former kavod, in its former glory? The temple in, old, in the Old Testament was glorious. It was important. It was the most important edifice for the people of Israel, that they had a place to worship at and to make sacrifices. Therefore, this temple was significant. Again, it was a place that was extremely important. These uses in others suggest that the word glory, kavod in the Old Testament, is not just heavy, but a word that reflects uh, priority, preeminence, significance, weightiness, and again, importance. So Psalm 19, verse 1, the psalmist opens up and it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. That word kavod means the heavens, when you look at the sky and the stars above at nighttime, and the hosts and everything that God created in them, the heavens declare the weightiness, the importance, the preeminence, of the Lord above. Isaiah 6.3 says the whole earth is full of God's glory, his significance, his importance. We have an English idiom that kind of captures exactly this connection between weightiness on the one hand and importance and significance on the other. Have you ever heard somebody say that that person is throwing their weight around? 
what that means is it's not that it's a heavy person. It means that that's a, a person of power, of significance, and title, and they're using that authority in a way that would ultimately get to the result that they might want in that situation. What weight is understood as is what's important or what is honoring. In the Old Testament, we have this command to honor the Sabbath day. That means to treat it as more important than every other day of the week. We have this command to honor our parents. That means we treat our parents as having an authority in our life that is different from other people of authority. This is what Paul was getting to when he penned 2 Corinthians 4.17. You guys probably know this verse really well. It says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. He's weighing on that, that metaphorical usage of kavod in the Old Testament. That's beyond all comparison. Over time, as the Old Testament continued to be written and into the New Testament, glory came to refer to all the trappings that reflect importance or the greatness of someone or something. It, it referred to as Julius Caesar was parading through the streets of Rome as a conquering general. It referred to the splendor and the majesty of everything that he encompassed. Alan Ross, a great Old Testament scholar, defines glory in this way. He says, the glory of the Lord is the most dramatic manifestation of the presence of the Lord. The glory of the Lord is directly tied to the presence of the Lord in such a way that it is the most dramatic manifestation of that presence. John Piper put it this way, the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. It is the going public of God's holiness. The glory of God is the display of the holiness of God and all that encompasses. To talk about God's holiness is to speak of his essential nature. To talk about God's glory is to speak of his importance, his significance, and his preeminence. God's glory means that he is the most important, he is the most supreme, he is the most significant person ever, and that ever will be. Um, in sin, we don't give God the glory that he deserves. And we give that glory, that importance, that significance to something or to someone else. Therefore, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory that God deserves, that God has been given. There's a problem. Romans 3.23 begins to reveal the problem of God's glory. But we also read about it, Brad just read it for us, in Exodus 32, or 33. Remember in Exodus 32, Israel committed a grave sin. They, before Moses could even get down from the top of Mount Sinai with the two tablets of stone in his hand, they had violated the very first command, not to have any other gods before the one true God of Israel, the one true God of the universe, the one true God of the Bible. Um, do you ever watch an old show? Uh, some of you guys have probably seen this. I used to watch this in the summertime when nothing else was on TV. My parents didn't have cable at our house, but have you ever watched a show called The A-Team before? B.A. Baracus, Hannibal, Face, and Mur Crazy Murdoch, all those guys. Here's, here's what I love about The A-Team. It's just a classic, classic show. They've made some movies after. I thought the movies were pretty good, too. Uh, at the end of every show, 
The same thing happens in the A-team. If you've seen one episode, you've seen all the episodes. You've even seen the movie, right? There's a problem. They don't know how to solve the problem in the context, and so they go to the A-team as the ultimate problem solver. And Hannibal's the leader of the A-team. And the first thing Hannibal does is he hears about the problem. He speaks to the people. He comes up with this great, grand, glorious plan to solve the problem at hand. And every time they get into it, the A-team solves the problem. They get to the end of the show, and, and Hannibal takes a cigar out of his pocket. He puts it in his mouth, and he says what? He says this great, famous line. I love it when a plan comes together, right? We all know this awesome line from the A-team. Now listen, God had a plan for Israel. In Exodus 32, the plan cannot be fulfilled. In fact, Exodus 33 goes on to give a contingency plan. The plan is not coming together for the people of Israel. He can't say the same thing like we heard in the A-team. Instead, there's going to be something different according to the plan of God. In a manner of speaking, Exodus 33 was not God's original plan for the people of Israel. Look down at verse 3. It says something like this, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. By the way, uh, a land flowing with milk and honey, just a side note here. This is a, a, a term that describes the land of Israel from top to bottom. And the north in Israel would have been the grazing grounds for the sheep, for the oxen, for the goats, uh, the cows. And in the north of Israel, from goats and from cows, they produce what? They produce milk. And so the place of milk in Israel is in the north. It's in the, uh, Gilead. It's in all the upper tribes that had all the herds and all the cattle that were assigned to them. In the south, you get down to the Dead Sea. You get down to the dry and arid places. And down there, they have dates. And Israel is not known for their honey, like we have local honey here in Oklahoma. Their honey is made from dates. It's date honey. And so the land of Israel is described as the land of milk and honey because from top to bottom, from the north, the land of milk, to the south, the land of honey, that's what they produced. Okay? So when you see that description in the Bible, that's what they're referring to is the whole land from north to south. Uh, if you go to Israel with us in November, December, you'll hear more about stuff like that. It's a great, great little tidbit, all right? Um, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. I will not go up among you. That's not plan A. This is almost like a contingency plan. God says, I cannot go up against, uh, um, among you because I would consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. What does that mean? God's glory cannot be in the presence of the people of Israel. Otherwise, they'd be dead. It would kill them. Why? Because they are a people that worships golden calves. And they do not hold the Lord God of glory with the glory that he deserves. They give that supremacy, that importance, that significance to something or someone else that's been created, not the creator who is blessed forever. This is the nature of sin. And so, what God proposes to Moses in Exodus 33, 1 through 4, is a contingency plan. This plan, listen, most of us, when we read that plan, especially in American culture, in some American churches that you go today, some people would say, uh, yeah, I'll take the contingency plan. Look what, look what God is offering to his people. He's offering the fulfillment of promises. Remember the the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm still going to give you that land. He still offers to fulfill that promise to the people of Israel. 
He still offers to protect the people of Israel. He still offers to go before them with an angel to annihilate their enemies and, and to help them as they go into the land. And, and so this is the manifest presence of God with all of, without all of the trappings that His holiness demands. This is all the benefits of God without all the costs of God. This is all the blessings of God without the curses of God. <laughs> this is most American people, when we look at this passage, say, yeah, sign me up for that. I'll take that, Jesus. Uh, just leave that judgment, difficulty, leave your purity, your holiness to the side, because that's the part that I struggle with the most. And what, what does Moses say in this context? He, that's exactly right. He says, no, as good as this plan sounds, even the people acknowledge that this is a disastrous word, verse 4. The NET says this is a troubling thing. The Hebrew word is actually this is a wicked word, which is an anthropomorphism because God is not evil or wicked. He's a good God. But to them, this plan seemed like it would be evil rather than for their good. Israel, listen, why, why did Israel not take plan B? Why did Moses not sign up for this? Israel craved the direct, glorious presence of God in their midst. And they did not want to settle for anything else. In fact, they wanted it so badly the divine presence of a God who is supreme in control of everything. They wanted this so badly that they tried to manufacture it with a golden calf when Moses was at the top of Sinai. If God's glory doesn't go with them, the rest of the journey was going to require more faith, more independence, more struggle, more figuring things out for themselves. It would be much more frightening, much more fearful, and they wouldn't have the security of the glorious presence of God that is around them. The problem of God's glory is that individually and corporately, God must be Israel's most important, most significant, most treasured possession of everything they have ever had or ever will have in their life. At every single moment of their life. And if that glory is not honored as glory, God will consume them for violating his perfect holiness. This is what his presence and his glory demands. But there are people who are constantly turning to other things, other gods. In fact, they even create them. Paul Tripp uses this to teach us a little bit about sin. Here's what he says. At the bottom of a broken marriage, a shattered family, a forsaken friendship, you will always find stolen glory. We crave glory that does not belong to us, and we step on one another to get it. Rather than glorifying God by using the things he has given us to love other people, we use people to get the glory we love. He continues on, and he says this, Sin causes us to steal the glory and rewrite it with ourselves as the lead and with our lives at center stage. Sin makes us glory thieves. All sin is in some way stealing the glory that belongs to God and giving that glory to someone or something else. At the heart of all sin is a desire to find glory in something or someone else besides God. And we are prone 
to do it because of sin and apart from God. That's the problem of God's glory. What's the solution? Uh, you, you can't read verses 12 through 18 without making two observations in the text. The first is this. God's special presence with Israel is tightly connected to whatever his glory is in the Bible. Glory is this idea that is tightly connected to God's special presence with Israel, the relational, uh, intimate, covenant relationship that he has with his people. Glory and presence ultimately go together. Number two, Moses is not going to settle for anything less than that majestic, perfect glory of God with the people of Israel. God had promised to send some aspect of his presence through an angel. His plan B was not to just leave them alone, but actually to clear the path for them and send an angel before them. He promised again to give Israel rest. The great promises for, from the forefathers through Genesis uh, into Exodus. He promised to fulfill these things. But Moses is not going to settle for plan B. In fact, he ultimately says it would be better for Israel if they stayed at the base of Mount Sinai and died in the wilderness than if they went forward and journeyed without God in the future. It would be better for them to die in the wilderness without God than to not go on with him in the future. His presence was so powerful, it was so important to Moses that if he didn't have it and if the people of Israel didn't have it, life was not going on worth going on and living. Life lost all of its meaning, all of its purpose, all of its direction. He simply had to have the glory of God with the people of Israel. And if he didn't, he didn't want anything else. Verse 15, if your presence does not go with me, do not bring us up from this place. Moses was stationed. He would not leave without the glorious presence of God in their midst. He simply wouldn't do it. And let me just stop right there and ask you this question. How many of you think of the glorious presence of God the way that Moses did in the Old Testament? How many, how many of you desperately want God's glorious presence in your life? And you say to yourself, God, life is not worth living if I don't have your presence in my midst. How many of you would literally have the heart of Moses in that situation in the Old Testament? How many of you would have said, look, God, send me the angel. I'm going on. At least I got another day to live. Moses helps to reorient our focus, our hope, our purpose in life by telling us that without the glory of God, nothing else is, is important. All of life simply fades away if you do not have the glorious presence of God in your midst. Lord, this retirement is really great right now. But I acknowledge that this retirement is nothing compared to living in your glorious presence. God, this relationship, this marriage that you've given to me is, is splendid, but it is nothing compared to being caught and raptured into your glorious presence on a daily basis. This vacation, this holiday at the sea is unbelievable, but I will trade it all, all of it, for one more day in your glorious presence. How many of us think of the glory of God in that way on a daily basis? Remember what Paul said in Philippians? 
He said, I consider, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisee, above all of his companions in every mark, in every measurement. And he says, you know what? I count it all as rubbish, as garbage, compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, to knowing his glorious presence in his life. Notice what Moses does. He makes two very strong pleas. You're going to see uh, two requests of God by Moses in Exodus 33. Verse 13 is the first one. He says, show me now your ways that I might know you. And a good translation for that verse, it's a hifel stem. In the Hebrew, it's a causative stem. We should read this something like, God, cause me to know your ways so that with the purpose that I will understand you, I will know you better. I will learn more about you. I will grow closer to you. Moses' prayer here in Exodus 33, both prayers, to know him more, uh, to show him his glory, for God to show him his glory, is a prayer because Moses wanted more of God. He wasn't happy. He wasn't content with what he knew about God. He wanted a deeper relationship. He wanted more intimacy. He wanted more knowledge. He wanted to know him at an even deeper level. Verse 18, please show me your glory. Moses asks to see the importance, the significance, the weightiness of God's glory more so than he had already experienced it. Remember, this is the one that met the Lord at the burning bush and heard the revelation of the name of the Lord. This is the one that saw all the miracles that God performed in Egypt. This is the one that was meeting with God at the top of Mount Sinai, and he still wants more of God. Every part of his being is consumed with the majestic glory of God. He wants more of it. He cannot live without it. He wanted to see the full importance and significance of God. Very interesting in verse 18. Moses said, please now show me your glory. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament there, it leaves the word glory out. And it's just a reflexive pronoun instead. So if you read this in the Greek translation, the lexicon, or the uh, Septuagint, excuse me, it would say, please show me yourself, God. Moses had seen God. He had heard from God. And here he is praying for more of God, more of himself to be revealed to Moses. God says to Moses, listen, pal, I can't because it would kill you. But here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to reveal myself in such a way that it won't kill you. I'm going to put you in a cleft of a rock. And he says something very interesting. We're going to talk about this next week. He says, my goodness will pass before you. Whatever we say about the glory of God must be connected to the goodness of God. That's what we're going to talk about next week. So I want you to come back for that. He says, no man can see my face and live. And so Moses says, praise the Lord. I'll take what I can get of the glory of God. And he reveals himself to him in the cleft of the rock. And I want to encourage you to to come back. Um, I cannot... You cannot see me because it would kill you, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a glimpse of who I am. I'm just going to give you a small taste of what I'm really like. 
Do you ever wonder why the plan of God included the cross of Christ? Um, surely a magnificent, sovereign, all-powerful God could have figured some other way to reveal himself to man than having his son come to the earth, suffer, uh, empty himself of glory, uh, die on a cross, and go through all the pain and suffering that Jesus went through in Calvary. Um, do you all ever uh, read John chapter 1 recently? It says something interesting in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And later on in the context, we come to find out that the Word is actually Jesus, the Word is Christ, because the Word came down, verse 14, and dwelt among us. And the end part of that verse says something like this, and we have seen his what? We have seen his glory. What Moses couldn't behold, God condescendingly showed us through his son, Jesus, the full glory of himself wrapped up in the person of Jesus. He made his glory known to us through the person of Jesus Christ, that when you looked at Jesus in his earthly ministry, you were looking at the full glory of God. A few of the disciples got a full, majestic manifestation of the presence of God when they were on the mountain, and, and he reveals himself in all of his glory and all of his splendor. And remember, Peter wants to build a tabernacle right there and just stay there forever. Um, don't, don't do that. God reveals his full glory to us through Jesus, and that full glory took on flesh and died on a cross for us. The most important one, the most significant one, the most glorious one came to the earth in the form of Jesus. He revealed his glory to us that we would otherwise not be able to behold apart from him, apart from God's favor. And we crucified him on the cross. The people crucified him. He died, and on that cross, he shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins and rose again three days later. Glory could not be held in a grave. And now sits at the right hand of the Father. What do we do with this passage, Exodus 33? The first thing we're going to do is we're going to follow it up with Exodus 34. All right? So come back, and we'll look at that passage. But I want you to think about doing two things as, as we close um, this morning. Number one, the glory of God as it is revealed in Scripture asks us to reorient the entire focus of our life on God and on God alone. When we understand what the glory of God is, it beckons, it asks, it demands that we reorient every aspect of our life to focus on God's glory as the most important thing about us, our most important pursuit, our most significant one that's in front of us, that everything else in life be framed around and consumed by the majestic glory of God. The concept of God's glory must not only impact your mind, it must impact your desires, your wants, your pleasures, and your pursuits. We get so caught up in sin thinking that in that moment it's going to give us what we really want, what really will fulfill us, what really will satisfy our longings. And we totally forget about the glory of God. Again, we steal glory that belongs to God and we give that glory to someone or something else that will never ultimately fulfill us. C.S. Lewis had a really great way of putting this. He wrote this. He said, most people, if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, 
would know that they want. We want things and desperately, acutely want them. Things that cannot be had ultimately in this world. There are all sorts of things, Lewis says, in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or think of a foreign country which we have never visited before or take some subject that excites us and longings for which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. He says, I am not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There is something that we have grasped at in a good and lovely marriage or in a good and lovely holiday. In that first moment of longing, but in reality, it ultimately just fades away. As the wife might be a good wife, and the hotels and the scenery may have been excellent, and the chemistry may have been a very interesting job, but at the end of the day, something has evaded us. We still want. We still desire. We still delight in things. The reason people pursue things, long for things desperately is because they're searching for glory. They're searching for significance. They're searching for something that's important beyond this world. They're placing their hope in something that can ultimately not fulfill. God is consistently telling us in Scripture over and over again, he's saying, stop looking for those things in things that are created and start looking for that in God be enraptured by the glory of God. Reorient the entire focus of your lives around the all-consuming pleasure of God's glory rather than the pleasure of things. Number two, God's glory is not only our greatest hope, but it's also, it frames the greatest story that has ever been told. Uh, Paul Tripp says this, he says, sin has made us glory robbers. We do not suffer well because suffering interferes with our glory. We do not find relationships easy because others compete with us for glory. We do not serve well because in our quest for glory, we want to be served instead. But the story of Scripture is the story of the Lord's glory. It calls us to an agenda that's bigger than our own agenda, that's bigger than self. It offers us something that's actually worth living for and will never disappoint. The Redeemer has come. Jesus has come into our lives so that glory thieves who are constantly putting glory in something else would joyfully live for the glory of another, capital A, for the glory of God. There's a really great verse at the end of Colossians chapter 1. It goes something like this. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the hidden riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. And it says this phrase, Christ in you is the hope of of glory. We know Jesus personally. When we have believed in him, he has taken residence up inside of our bodies. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, God's glory is in some way miraculously made known to us when we believe the truth of the gospel. And yet, there is still a fuller glory to be revealed in the future. That Christ in us will soon become the Christ before us. Before our eyes, we will see him one day in glory.
And we pray, Lord, haste the day that that would come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, we thank you that Moses didn't settle for plan B. Um, Lord, we pray for the, the courage not to settle ourselves for the things of this world that might be substituted for the one true glory of who you are, of your majestic, magnificent presence in our life. God, I pray that um, we would be people who are constantly turning to the glory of God as our utmost passion, pursuit, and delight, and that everything else in this world would fall in place behind it. God, um, give us a vision, give us an experience, give us a, a desire to pursue who you are in your magnificent and majestic glory and help us not to settle for anything less. We ask this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen.